0: You open your podcast provider of choice, and then you see it. A new episode of Three Panel Contrast. You hit play and hear the handsome host's introductory words. Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain texts and certain scholars into conversation. I'm your host this month, Michael Hancock. I'm an instructor at the University of Waterloo, and I'm currently speaking from my dining room table. Fellow co-hosts, please introduce yourself and your makeshift recording studios.
1: Um, hi, I'm Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University, recording from my um, from my childhood
2: bedroom. <laughs> and I'm Andrew DeMann, a lecturer at the University of Waterloo, Saint Jerome's Kinnapus. Recording from my basement with a blanket draped behind me to dampen the sound a little bit.
1: <laughs> hey, I've got a nice p- painting of Nightcrawler behind me, and some Man from Uncle trading cards. So, yeah. like, uh, the Michael's got some great art behind him. It looks like too.
0: Oh yeah. Today we're going to be discussing the genre of the gamebook comic with Pat Mills Dice Man Number One with art and writing by various 2000 AD creators, and Al Ewing's You Are Deadpool with art by Salva Espen and Paco Diaz. Andrew, would you roll us on into an intro for Diceman?
2: Yes. Diceman was a short-lived series of comics produced by the famous British anthology publisher Fleetway as a spin-off of 2000 AD. And at the behest of famous 2000 AD editor Pat Mills, the so-called godfather of British comics. Uh, it was an experimental merger of comic book storytelling and RPG mechanics. Mill's experiment brought to the table the rich and well-established catalogue of 2080 characters, most notably in the issue we read, Judge Dredd, uh, as well as the contributions of some iconic 2080 creators, such as Alan Grant, Kevin O'Neill, and John Wagner. The series debuted in 1986 and put up shutters in 1986 after just five (laughs) issues. Our issue number one features three stories centered around 2080 properties, Judge Dread, Nemesis the Warlock, and Slain, respectively. Interestingly, the creation of each story includes the creation of individualized game mechanics. All require a pair of six-sided die and some ruled paper to track stats, but what you're tracking and how it affects the gameplay vary according to the needs of each individual story. Beyond that, the games rely on the standard choose-your-own-adventure mechanic of making choices and turning to the correct page, or, in the case of Diceman, the correct numbered panel. Though it blazed bright and petered out quickly, Diceman holds currency today as a rare example of transmedia storytelling, one that calls attention to all manner of questions about hot and cold media, open and closed texts, and the concept of er- ergodic literature in general. Uh, and on most of these issues, I will be playing the role of the coward and throwing my questions back, <laughs> whose expertise on these subjects exceeds my own to a truly hilarious degree. But I'm eager to talk about these issues and what they mean for our existing understanding of comics literature, particularly in keeping with Scott McLeod's "Inescapable concept of the gutter and the accomplice effect that it creates. For me, what we see in "Dice Man is the gamification of the gutter, uh, and that is something well worth discussing, even if my drinking game-worthy response is probably going to be, "What do you think, Michael?"
0: <laughs> uh, thank you, Andrew. Anna, do you pass an initiative check to tell us about You Are Deadpool?
1: I don't know what that means, but I can tell you about Deadpool. <laughs> so You <laughs> Are um, Deadpool is a five-issue miniseries by Ewing, Espen, um, and Diaz, as you mentioned, um, from t- 2018, that combines role-playing mechanics and choose-your-own-adventure-style interactivity, much like Dice Man. Guided by Deadpool and his signature meta-commentary, readers or players get to choose between different courses and paths, gather inventory, and fight opponents using a signature build-it-yourself Deadpool die, or, you know, regular dice, which Deadpool admits is probably a lot easier. In my favorite gimmick, you also collect points towards your badness score and your sadness score... Mercilessly stabbing henchmen through the heart with your katana contributes to your badness score. Finding photos of the henchmen's families in their personal effects contributes to your sadness score. I find Deadpool works best when you temper his ultraviolence with a touch of humanity or a pathos in this case, and this accomplished that really effectively, I thought. There are also a number of extra games throughout, things like a challenge to compose your own Deadpool beat poem with right and wrong answers, obviously. Um, And you have to navigate your way through a Wild West mini-farce within the larger farce. Lots of little games like this throughout. The story involves Deadpool being hired to retrieve a time travel helmet, which he then uses to travel through time, as you do, and interact with various cultural eras and, of course, various Marvel eras. The second issue is set in the 60s and features Deadpool performing beat poetry, making pop art, getting blown up by Bruce Banner's Gamma Bomb, and sneaking aboard the Fantastic Four's rocket ship. The next issue is set in the 70s and features Deadpool interacting with monsters, monster hunters, and kung fu heroes. The next is set in the 80s, featuring interactions with Daredevil, Bullseye, and the Kingpin, among others. And the final issue is a meta-romp through a bunch of different eras, with the player-slash-reader equipped with an army of disposable Deadpools, which you have to try not to kill, but probably will end up killing most of them. Each issue is crisp and funny and violent, without a touch of realism, which is generally how I prefer my violence served up. In an interview about the series, writer Al Ewing felt that Deadpool was an ideal character to resurrect the choose-your-own-adventure-slash-role-playing style. This was because, according to Ewing, the character's unkillability facilitates endless resurrections, and because his capacity to break the fourth wall um, helps make the format more accessible to people who might not be super used to it. This definitely worked for me. I'm used to Deadpool comics, and this felt like a Deadpool comic. Jumping around to different panels, pages, and time periods felt normal because of my familiarity with this character. I had significantly more trouble following the stories in Dice Man, which we will talk about in due course. So you can read slash play You Are Deadpool by the book, diligently rolling the dice, keeping track of your sadness and badness scores and your choice of objects for your inventory, but you don't have to play it that way. I read slash played it fairly loosely, following through the different scenarios to get a sense of the mechanics, and then by the end just cheating and flipping through all the scenes I missed. So much the same way I used to read Choose Your Own Adventure books, where I would start at the end and work backwards. As someone who has never actually played an RPG, I know, I can't believe it either. Um, I enjoyed this low level of commitment. Um, I can see, however, if you're a more serious gaming enthusiast, this might be a bit pedestrian for you, or maybe not. I'm not sure. We can talk about all of these things today, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: So, dear listener, would you join us for a discussion on comic book history, game design, and the spirit of playing while you read? The choice is yours. The words echo in your mind. The choice is yours. What will you do? Are you so enthused and familiar with game books that you will pause the podcast to go reread your favorite game book first? Are you so enthused but not familiar with game books that you pause to look them up online? If you choose these things, then um, you, you, go and, you go and do that. And then you listen on. All right. Uh, I think the introductions covered this to a certain extent, but uh, let's start with a question I'm sure many of our listeners are asking, a question I am dying to answer myself, but it's probably better fielded at least initially by more recent introducees to the field. Uh, Anna, Andrew, uh, based on this sampling, what do you think about what a game book is, and what do you think about game books?
2: I feel like a game book is, I mean, in the case of 2000 AD, it's sort of um, an accompaniment to the existing franchises. Mm. Like it's not independent. I, I, I don't believe anybody who hadn't read 2000 AD would pick up this book, uh, unless they're, you know, like, like game book enthusiasts or something like that. Uh, and like me, yes. Well, <laughs> it's pretty clear that the storytelling is immersed in those pre-existing worlds. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of building off those franchises. So again, it's a transmedia storytelling um, effort for me. I mean, right. maybe even the Deadpool book kind of isn't. I, I like the idea. I, I think for me, these game books read more analogous to video games um, mm-hmm. than to to books. Like I think of the Telltale series as, as maybe something that's that's very similar. Um, basic sort of choices uh, and then some, um, you know, numerical random mechanics. So it's the two-stage element there. On the one hand, the, the reader is empowered because they make choices, and that's interesting to me from an artistic perspective. Um, but on the other hand, there's also the capacity for random variables through the use of dice, um, which is also kind of interesting to me. Uh, so it, you're, you're taking a lot of power out of the storyteller's hands and putting it into the hands of you know fate and the reader, what which creates
0: you... oh, sorry a ahead. lot of interesting yeah that that creates a lot of interesting things if you want to say still tell a story. If you want to push them around a track, you have to make sure that they can reach the track, I I guess. Right.
2: Or, you know, incorporate. I mean, as you're going to talk about, I'm sure with, with procedural rhetoric, the idea of how the game design is part of the storytelling, right. Uh, Right. And how the creator has to think through those different possibilities. So it's not as empowering as maybe as I'm making it out to be because the creator is still in control of what choices are available um but i do think it's definitely a a step away from the traditional traditional linear narratives that comic books i mean kind of have to give us like it's it's right Uh in the definition right it it has to be linear um otherwise it doesn't work to the same extent um so this is a fun experiment Uh, is it artistically powerful there were some elements that i liked you know what i mean I, i mean i'm a purist uh i'm not as into the game mechanics (laughs) Um, But I I enjoyed this experience, whether or not I'm a convert to to game books for the rest of my career, probably not. Um, But I I think there's a lot to be had here for people who are more interested in that kind of, as you said, procedural rhetoric element. Right. Yeah,
1: I mean, I definitely, as you, you were sort of, talking about it, and for one thing, I'll point out that I've been noticing that really often in the podcast when there's a really complicated question, I'll just be like, why don't you handle that, Andrew, because you're so much better at (laughs) articulating complex concepts and I just want to, like, hear you do that and then I'll just, like, rant about my emotional reaction. Um, Anyway, but as you were so intelligently talking, I was thinking about choices and creativity and, you know, sort of my responses to this text in that way. I found myself very frustrated, yeah, by the limited choices. And so many of the choices are so mechanical. It's like, do you go left or do you go right? And I just, for me, I mean, I have played things like, (laughs) I used to play the King's Quest games very, like, religiously growing up. We were so into those games, my sister and I. So, you know, it would be the kind of game where, you know, you collect inventory and you type commands and, you know, interact with people and everything. But the thing I liked sort of about those kind of games was, I guess the interactivity, I mean, the way that you got to talk to characters and hear stories and that kind of thing, and that was sort of like the hook for me. I didn't really care about winning the game or anything necessarily so much as, you know, having those interactions and seeing how sort of the different characters within this community fit into the story. And there was sort of a logic to, you know, collecting the items and how you would use them to do various I mean, you know, it's a typical game, right? Yeah. But it's like in the Dice Man comic, it was like, again, the choices were so programmatic and you have so little control because you don't, <laughs> I mean, it's not, you're not responsible for like building up your fighting skills and doing everything. It's just a random roll of the dice. And I just, I just, I can't get my head around that really. I don't really understand what that means. I know that there's stuff built into it where, you know, different people get different roles depending on, you know, how they're situated within this world and everything. And I sort of get that, but I just think for me, the sort of emotional hook of this kind of thing Wasn't clear. It's not something that appeals to me, and I definitely just full disclosure. I did not play the Dice Man comic properly. I sort of (laughs) tested it out a little bit, but I mean, I I, one of the issues, and I think this will be a good comparison between Dice Man and Deadpool, was that a lot of the scenarios appear like simultaneously on the same page. And one of the interviews I read with Ewing about Deadpool is that he very very consciously made sure that that wasn't the case and their kind of design of that book so that you would be surprised by the various scenarios as you played through them. And I did find that very effective in the Deadpool book. There were a couple of good comedy beats where you were moving from one thing to another thing and not seeing that in advance was very effective in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. Whereas in the Diceman one, because you have all the scenarios on the same page in a lot of cases, I found that very disorienting and very distracting. And I found some of the impact of the choices um didn't come across as strongly um in addition to the fact that just like <laughs> i think that lack of control was emphasized into in terms of sort of the effect of some of the choices mm-hmm. i mean i sort of remember that from playing a games like king's quest or space quest or police quest or whatever i played all those kind of games so i guess i have played these kind of games a little bit but um <laughs> But just that you had no control over it. It'd be like, do you want to open this chest? Oh, you opened the chest. Now you're dead. And it's like, well, how could I know that? Come on. That's just, yeah. <laughs> and I get that that's part of it, but at the same time, and then I didn't get what to do once you did die. I'm like, where do I go back to? Do I have to go back <laughs> to the first page? Or I was really confused about that, but um, I don't know. That's just sort of my emotional reaction to reading it. But But yeah, I don't know. There's lots of stuff that, that we can unpack there as we compare these two.
0: I think the King's Quest comparison is very apt, especially uh, I mean, probably the closest one to one is the slain uh, comic to that. Although Deadpool gets there too. the the kind of exploration item use and instant deaths are all uh, very much part of the but even I, I think this makes a good comparison, too, because the King's Quest games were followed by the Lucas art games. Who had the general philosophy of, no, all of that Walking Dead uh, stuff from the King's Quest games, all of that dying—that is bad game design. We are going to make a graphic adventure game that you can never put yourself in a lose-lose scenario. So it created this variance, and you even, and yeah, there's the same sort of variance in the game book part. The relevant historical background for these particular game books is that you basically have two branches of game book histories, uh, one American, one in the one in Britain. Uh, The American one dates back to the choose your adventure series that has become almost uh, eponymous. Is that the word? Uh, Yeah. With the uh, format itself, it was, I believe based on very early computer video games, but I might be wrong about that one. Uh, But I do know the, British version, the fighting fantasy series in the, uh, I believe, maybe late 70s, early 80s by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone uh, that was based more directly on Dungeons and Dragons. The idea was explicitly to create a single player version of that. There is a lot of influence and interflux between uh, Jackson and Livingstone and the 2080 people. I believe a few of books, I remember one book in particular uh, has a cover illustrated by Brian Boland, that sort of thing. Uh, I believe I've read Mills was influenced by that. We certainly have Ewing uh, mentioning both of those series, uh, that is the Diceman series and Fighting Fantasy, uh, as inspirations for his version. And I think you can also see that in the fact that all of these feature very heavily the two-dice combat. Uh, that is an absolute staple of the fighting fantasy game and combines, as you discussed, the choices, but also randomness. And often the randomness gets steeped up a little too high. Often the choices are a little too gated by, oh, you didn't collect this item 30 pages ago. Well, I guess you're dead now. One of the things I find interesting is that the fighting fantasy format basically did not work unless it was steeped in fantasy. They did some sci-fi stories, but they mostly didn't work. Uh, They certainly didn't do anything that was not sci-fi or fantasy. Uh, There was a horror entry, but uh, that was a little different. But for the most part, it required this fantasy setting that isn't quite the case for most of these. It's possible to do a game book without the randomness factor, but then you have to really... You generally have a much higher variety of choice. The 1990s short lived series, uh, Virtual Reality, went with that approach.
1: Yeah, I I mean that randomness is interesting because this comes back to something that Andrew mentioned, which is I find the randomness sort of more palatable when it does have that humor element or sort of like some self reflexivity. Because if it has that element, then you feel like you're getting something out of dying. You're like, oh, (laughs) that was funny. I get it, and like at least there's sort of like a creative sort of element there. But I did feel like a lot of the conclusions in the Dice Man comic didn't sort of give me that feeling necessarily. It was just sort of I mean that was there. I mean these comics are super were funny but they're like over the top whatever (laughs) Uh, and and i mean it's it's present but i definitely enjoyed that element sort of more in the deadpool one i'm not like angry when i died in the deadpool comic you're just like oh yeah that's funny i get it and i mean you know again it just takes me back to some of those well space Quest in particular where they try to make the deaths mm -hmm. funny always and so like at least you got something out of it
2: well i was just going to say well well, thinking about um the idea of um specifically dice man as a supplement to the 2080 stories I do think it's interesting in terms of how that affects your later reading of like a Judge Dredd story in which you have just read a comic where Judge Dredd dies several times.
1: Mm, that's that interesting. Can
2: work to establish vulnerability in the greater series uh, in general, which is something that's always a problem in comics because of, you know, ridiculous plot armor. So I think there's maybe a, a, like a value there. But I mean, I, I, I would like to appreciate this book as more than a supplement.
0: I mean, in that sense, it's kind of the um, fate of any miniseries, right? And in fact, uh, plays into the plot of Deadpool, that it is not uh, part of the main line.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, getting back to something that Andrew was saying, I did find it really almost disorienting. And I mean, I don't have a big emotional investment in the Judge Judge Dredd character, but seeing that he gets killed in his battles just as a factor of chance, I found quite destabilizing. He's supposed to be this unkillable, like, superpowered cop, and yet just a roll of the dice can kill him, and that's not how it works in a usual comic. And I mean, if you read that back into, you know, if you are going to read a high level of interactivity between this and the larger, judge-dread world. I wonder if that does sort of change or destabilize your idea of that character at all, and potentially in a productive way. I mean, there's always something productive, right, about that narrative of, you know, life is chance and what does this make you reflect on the existential nature of reality or whatever and I mean not really a lot into it but at the same time I did find that interesting I was like wait Judge Dredd can just get killed that's weird and I found that like an interesting aspect of the comic anyway and I don't know how someone with more investment in the character would kind of interpret that.
0: Well it is like plays into that video game thing right that like it is a very rare video game based on a superhero where you can never die and yet that violates our sense of what the character
1: is and we- yeah but i mean the deadpool thing is interesting right because like i did find that thing that ewing said interesting where he was like deadpool is perfect for this because you know we do have him get killed sometimes in this comic and that's totally acceptable because deadpool could do whatever he wants and then sometimes he's unkillable which is also totally acceptable because deadpool could do whatever he wants i mean the rules of deadpool are nonsensical and just dependent on whether it's funny or not so that's kind of really useful for this kind of format
2: yeah, I, um, think you, I think you sold me on Judge Dredd, because as soon as you started talking about how maybe that character shouldn't be vulnerable in, in the way that well, I'm kind of a credit indictment, I think I agree with you now. I, I think. Well, yeah, his I, I was
1: like, did I talk myself into it being really? Even <laughs> though I didn't enjoy it, <laughs> it's like, I think I'm just doing the typical academic thing of intellectualizing it and, and trying to sell it on that level.
0: McRib expert and game scholar Ian Bogost coined the term procedural rhetoric to refer to how games essentially make statements through the procedure it asks players to play through, meaning that comes out of the rules and specifically playing through the rules, embodying the procedure, basically. Uh, For example, the original version of Monopoly was actually designed to be unpleasant to play because the game's creator wanted to convince people to work against monopolies. Uh, If you have ever hated Monopoly, there's a good reason for that. Uh, Do you see procedural rhetoric at work in these particular stories? And how does it differ between our stories?
2: What I do want to talk about, because I think it was the most interesting piece of procedural rhetoric in the entire Mm -hmm. Dice Man series, was the speed mechanic. Yeah. The idea of controlling your speed in order to, like, I mean, get you there on time to save the day whilst negotiating the threat of, you know, getting hurt by going too fast uh, through things
0: maybe we should start
2: a step backwards can you give us the premise of the nemesis segment so yeah the, the premise is you have to like go rescue someone named purity and we should talk about <laughs> the misogyny in that but we, we yes. don't have time um so you're like zooming.
1: It's so obvious i think we can just accept it
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you're zooming through this like science fiction super highway let's call it Mm-hmm. Uh, and like it, it's a race car. i mean um what's the the movie i would compare it to death race that movie so it, you're doing that but it, it creates this cool mechanic like, like you're tracking your health essentially and your energy but but the cooler thing is you're tracking your speed and making choices to a degree of i think 10 miles per hour mm-hmm. uh, with a max of i believe 120 yes yeah so that to me was really cool as a way of making you conscious and immersed uh, in that sort of race element and mentality, forcing you to actually gauge the danger of going fast, whereas normally in a comic you would just be like, "Go super fast, speed racer guy um so so I liked that. I thought that one was really effectively immersive,
0: and I like the way it combined that with risk that the way combat worked in this is that uh you rolled two dice and compared it against your speed that is. If you roll over the speed and the enemy is attacking, I think they miss. Uh, oh no, Sometimes if you roll onto right. speed, if you roll. Okay. So let's say your speed is set at 110 kilometers per hour. Then in order to hit someone, you have to roll above 11 in order to get hit. You have to roll above 11, which is very unlikely. So right. if you're moving very quickly, it is, you can't aim very well, but you also can't be hit very easily. Yeah, so exactly. it's a management of risk on that sense.
2: Yeah, I thought that was cool in contrast to the Dread mechanic, which is pretty well basically hit points, if we're being honest. Yeah, the thing I found interesting about the Dread
0: version is that, uh, very quickly, the if I remember correctly, the Dread mechanic is that, uh, you essentially were given the attack strength of the enemy and rolled against that. Uh, they either hit you or they don't. There's no mechanic for, uh, dread to hit them
2: except through choice defeat them because that's that's in the narrative i think they they did a
0: yeah i think they did a bad job of setting that up where like a better framework would be uh dreads actions are inevitable or something like that something that reinforced his own power uh the result is a mechanic that you're not attacking you're withstanding right dreads action is endurance Yeah which could, I I can see that working with the version of the character. I see that working with the haunted house aesthetic they're setting up, but it does create this sense of powerlessness that doesn't match dread very well.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, I need, like, because it was, like, reading it, I was like, I feel like there's interesting stuff going on, but I don't know how to articulate it. But that's, yeah, that's really interesting. That gets back to sort of that concern I had about his vulnerability in that comic. I mean, getting back to the Nemesis one, yes it's really immersive but it's also about speed and you have to stop and roll dice and write stuff oh, down yeah. to figure out what next is so i'm just like i guess, yeah it's immersive but i mean it's definitely not like the experience of driving a car <laughs> so <laughs> I, know, I found that i mean really i was like joking to you guys before the pod that i just when i got to the instructions page of that one i was just like i gotta throw my <laughs> ipad across the room i it can't is. even like there's no way i'm get, like i didn't even read it like i was just like I, I read some of it and i was like this is math homework i'm not doing this <laughs> like you know I didn't take math past high school for a reason and I just it made me like so angry but I did you know I made a good attempt to you know like read it and sort of think about how the mechanics might work a little bit I found that one really particularly destabilizing though like with that factor of having all the different scenarios present on one page because you'd have things like eight different massive detailed black and white car explosions or interactions going on on a single page and they don't necessarily all relate to each other and I just found it so distracting to read. Like I mm-hmm. found it really, really disorienting to figure out, especially because you're moving from like one, because that one was so action oriented and so abstract because a lot of the views are just external views of the cars and the sort of setting. Mm hmm. I feel like with color it actually would have been a lot easier because you could have had you know ways to differentiate your car from the other cars that would have been a bit more effective but when you're going from like one panel of like the tiny car like coming up to an explosion and then you have to flip like 10 pages like forward to another panel situated on a page of a bunch of other car explosions I just had a really hard time remembering what motion I was doing and then what motion I was proceeding to I just found it really really hard to follow and then if I factored in actually doing the dice rolling and like keeping track. I don't know how I would ever make my way through this. I found it really disorienting in a way that was productive in a way because like I could sense, you know, the disorientation of that world, but I would have enjoyed that a lot more just as a comic than as a game, which I found very hard to follow.
0: It has a forward motion, but as a result it's yeah, it it, it keeps things accelerating, but as a result it there's no differentiation. In the other ones, there's at least separate rooms or whatever to right. or separate actions. This is driving forward pretty much the whole thing.
2: And that gets weird. I think it comes down to um, one of the fundamental mechanics of comics draftsmanship that Will Eisner talks about. The idea of experiencing the past and future in your peripheral vision when reading mm. in comics. Uh, and we can't turn that off, right? So, so in the Choose Your Own Adventure, you're getting these peripheral visions of, you know, paths that aren't uh, and a past that wasn't. And that's got to be a fundamental shift in the way that you're experiencing the narrative moment.
0: Yeah, it's a bit, I mean, it's unavoidable in game books, too. Uh, and famously, they sometimes put in fake entries that you can't get to, uh, to kind of throw you off that way.
2: Yeah, and then you throw in the other mechanic of not um peripheral experience of time, but like having been through a path. Mathematically mm-hmm. speaking, the path that you're reading, it's likely that you've played two or three paths already, right? So, I mean, I mean, in a lot of modern video games, you can speak to this better than I can, um, like you're not designed to win on the first go. You, you right. get killed a few times. I'm thinking like the Bloodborne game kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You get killed a few times, you learn the weaknesses, you learn how to succeed, and then on your 20th try, you win. So there's right. again, a, a very complex simultaneity there in your experiencing based on your your previous experiences
0: and in the video game version there's usually some form of like you don't have to replay the whole game if you die but uh game generally i mean the dicemen are pretty short but they're not short enough that that doesn't sting
2: right
1: well can i ask like again i'm like i don't play any rpgs so i'm like a really a newbie but I mean, I found it frustrating how little control you had over kind of the strength or like abilities of your character. Like if you play D&D or something, you get to sort of build up the capabilities of your characters over time and that kind of thing, right? I mean, that's what you're Mm -hmm. talking about in terms of these video game mechanics as well. But in any of these comics, you had no control over that. It's just like what you're ascribed by the creator of the comic. And I mean, did you find that sort of a limitation of it at all? Like I found that, frustrating because I had so little control over sort of building any of the mechanics of this world. I mean, your choices were essentially random.
0: I I have the very unsatisfying answer of uh, you eventually get used to it. (laughs) but That's not a fix. Uh, I think the best game books are ones that at least give you the same sort of information that you would have in real life rather than blindly making choices or consequences that don't make sense. But often game books come down to uh, go right or left, oh, you went left, uh, well, you'll find out that that was the wrong choice about fifteen minutes from now, yeah, mm-hmm. which is very frustrating
1: I, I think, found it weird too, the way this was especially apparent in the judge Dredge, judge dread comic, but the way it flipped back and forth from sort of perspectives where we're looking at dread to ones where we're like put into his perspective, which mm-hmm. I got that they were trying to reference us being judge dread, but because that was done so inconsistently, I found that strange as well. Cause there'll be a lot of those panels where, you know, you're looking down his like arms, carrying the gun, walking up the staircase or whatever. But then we get, you know, obviously panels featuring him as well. Cause he's the star of the comic and you want to mm-hmm. see Judge dread, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether I found that satisfying. I just thought it was sort of an interesting thing that they tried to do that a little bit, but then like not consistently and I didn't know what to make of that.
0: I did like the reuse of panels, especially in the Dread one, that uh, like when you attack the cult you can in one choice see them from the front and the other from behind and Mm
2: -hmm.
0: like the way that it uses variations in that sense I found really, at least personally, appealing.
1: Yeah, I can uh, see that. Yeah, I'd, 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 I I'd noticed some of that stuff as I was reading slash playing through it for sure. What about the slain? That um, was my least favorite of the ones in Dice Man. So like, I don't know if I have a lot of really good insights into that one.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to say about it either. I mean, it's interesting in terms of creating a world where like some of the choices are counterintuitive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I like that. I, I don't have a lot of strong thoughts on the system other than it was complicated to me. What were you thinking? The more minor
0: point is that... I don't know anything about Slane. I have never heard of this character before reading this <laughs> comic. I think I've heard of Nemesis. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Dred- it Odell, was a right? good idea to start this series with Dread because I think he's pretty much the, the marquee uh, 2000 2080 character. Very much so. In most fantasy-based game books, you play a pretty goody-good hero. Uh, I appreciated that in... Th- I feel like this might mimic some of the dynamic of the actual comic that generally speaking, treating your sidekick poorly is the right choice, <laughs> It is an interesting like device. You have to ignore what he finds in the written in the toilet. uh There's no penalty for punching him it's It's very strange for someone who uh, grew up on ones where you were very much penalized for taking those kinds of choices.
2: I think that reflects uh, the 2000 AD brand, which was very yes. anti sort of traditional heroism. Yeah. In
0: terms of the mechanic, I thought maybe this is different than your playthroughs, but um, so the mechanic for the uh, slain game is pretty basic. Uh, you, I believe it's basically you roll dice for yourself, you roll dice for the opponent, Uh, whichever one rolls higher wins, subtract the difference, and you do that much damage to your health. Yes? Sounds right. The additional element, though, is that after you defeat your opponent, you add their original health score to yours. And I thought that was a good way to create at least a little bit of that feeling of (laughs) getting your experience up, that I finished that one with a health of somewhere in the 60s. And I felt like, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty buff barbarian.
2: Yeah, it gives you that bloodlust reflective of the character, right?
0: Yeah, it means you want to take on fighting people because that makes you stronger.
1: Do we want to talk about the mechanics of the Deadpool one? Because we haven't talked about Deadpool much. Yeah,
0: yeah. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a good person to talk about it, because as I talked about in my intro, I did cheat. I didn't write down my scores or, or my inventory objects. I just sort of... I really kind of read it through, like treating it like a typical Deadpool comic and some of the elements of like, did you have this in your inventory? I just sort of treated it as a joke and just sort of made whatever decision I wanted to make, well, which I get is totally cheating, but the comic also encourages you to cheat, so it's not yeah. really... Well,
0: honestly, that's exactly how I did it, too. Um, And I think the Deadpool comic pushes to an extent where, like, the cheating
2: feels like a better way to play. Yeah, I think so. I I, I think because, I mean, I I totally cheated and was reading around and whatever (laughs) I felt like doing. Although I read it on Unlimited, by the way, which which did a lot of weird page blackouts. So Mm -hmm. you, you would only put one panel up per page. So you yeah, I was going to ask phone. you
1: guys about, was this actually a print comic or was it just digital? Because obviously, I obviously read it digitally as well. But um. I
0: read it in print. Uh, so I've got my print, own copy. how is it yeah. in
1: print? Is it like one panel per page or how is it?
0: No, it's, uh, you've got, yeah, a full page of various things. The panels are numbered. Uh, you, it works pretty much like the Judge Dredd one.
1: Okay cuz that that was, you know, cuz that was one of my criticisms of the Judge Dredd one but then it's so different reading it digitally and I mean I had to download a new comics reader for it which uh, I'm so dumb I should have brought it on Unlimited which I have but it didn't actually occur to me Michael just sent us the file. But um, so I had to get another comics reader, which would display the pages down the side so that I could like, have slightly better navigation, although it was still terrible. Like uh-huh. I, I couldn't <laughs> quite see where too. the numbers yeah. were and stuff. Yeah, which is like yeah. part of why I cheated because it was really frustrating. But yeah, that would have been so different reading it in print. That's like a whole other thing.
0: Yeah, there's a, it played much more to the nostalgic sense of actually turning to pages.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which
0: very much appeals to me.
1: Yeah yeah no yeah I'd love to like to experience it that way as well I mean I did find it very effective like you know once I was able to sort of navigate a little bit better to like just have the single panels on a page sort of in the digital format because you were like surprised by a lot of the outcomes sometimes in a way that was quite effective and as I was saying before I think some of the humor really like lands that way kind of well because you know you move from one scenario to like the surprise of the next scenario and with it being a humor comic that can be really effective it's sort of you get that good slapstick effect and particularly with something. Like you know, the there was that good joke about you know their scene with Deadpool and the priest and the first comic and the priest is telling him about you know the meaninglessness of his life and then and then it's like oh add to your sadness score and then when you mm. click like it adds the next panel and then you stab the priest and then you're like add to your badness score <laughs> so like I mean that's that's like dumb Deadpool humor but I felt it was very effective in this format.
0: I mean the in terms of the rhetoric. I think it's very interesting that the item system kind of takes lead over the combat or even the sadness badness that the mm. like in terms of determining the overall comic the I feel like the sadness and badness don't have a major effect I mean they're supposed to affect which order you read the comics in but they're more a way to get you in the head of the character than to affect the yeah. actual play the combat's barely there in the sense that you have even less control over it than the other ones and you are more likely to lose. But as you said, losing is kind of built in that Deadpool just kind of bounces back usually. Mm. Yeah. But But it's the like kind of the item hunt that I think really drives it. Oh, did you notice this item or like, did you notice the sticks? I couldn't find both sticks. I could only find one stick. It was very disappointing.
1: <laughs> but it's like it's effective. I found you know because some of the frustrations I would have like with the Dice Man comic, you know, they're just built into the humor in this comic, right? I mean, like, did yeah. you remember to pick up that item like back then? And then you know, it's a little joke about you know, like the the meta meta joke at the end where like, did you remember to pick up the comic that's this comic at the beginning <laughs> because like this comic is located in this comic, and you know, then it just becomes like a joke, right? Like, and you know, it's mm-hmm. an effective joke because it can point out how funny those elements of the inventory are, or like. Like, if you picked up the donut, now you can enjoy it. It's so tasty. And, you know, so it's just sort of like making fun of that process, which is, again, why I think it encourages cheating and why it is very sort of accessible. It's, you know, it's a, it's Deadpool, right? So, I mean, it's a parody of choose your own adventure, even as, as it is a functional choose your own adventure.
0: The Deadpool comics in particular have Deadpool essentially traveling through history. Uh, How did that part work for you? How did the engagement with history fit with a game book format and fit with Deadpool?
1: i mean you know it's always fun right i mean i have a hard time always thinking about how someone who didn't know anything about the marvel universe would react to that kind of stuff because that's not this is sort of off topic but maybe interesting i had this realization the other day that like i'm a multi-generational like marvel reader i was reading like recent marvel cosmic comics the other day and i was just like oh i'm at that point where like i got into these 10 years ago and now all the same plots are just repeating Mm -hmm. and like that's such a weird feeling like oh man i've moved through a whole generation of comics like as an active weekly reader anyway so aside from that i don't know how someone who was like completely like if someone was completely new to deadpool and this world and whatever but i think it would still be accessible because you know there was stuff like i didn't really know the rufus carter character um except to know that he seems like a character that would have appeared in sort of marvel kung fu Fu monster comics from that era and then i looked him up and it's like yeah he's in a few random issues of, of and that's where he comes from and he's super cool and that's the one thing that we can do for him.
0: (laughs) I love that sequence where like the only solution is to just give him respect and you win.
1: I know I know I of course I did I knew there'd be a good joke of like make fun of him and then it's like what's wrong with you <laughs> like, you lose was <laughs> like I thought that was pretty good but um I mean there were things like it getting back to that mechanics question you know like it, it would propose things where you were anticipating what the joke might be if you chose certain things because certain choices were funny and I did like find them <laughs> effective again I was like yeah because you're choosing like oh I'm gonna make fun of um, this is going to be funny and then like choosing that choice and then you get sort of a payoff of like kind of a good joke um but yeah, I mean, in terms of the interaction with sort of the Marvel Universe and stuff, I really liked the 80s one where he's interacting with 80s Daredevil and stuff. And it was fun, the little things that they did where they did, you know, the really like serious melodramatic version of Daredevil when like Deadpool mentions Elektra and he's like, oh, Elektra's alive? <laughs> it's, like, it's so good. that, like being, you know, a particular Daredevil fan, um, I found that very enjoyable. And what's but, that? You know, it does that kind of usual stuff where, you know, the stuff set in the 60s had kind of a... Um... Mm-hmm a very sort of, I don't know, like sort of more of like the pop tone and it was like sort of more, almost the jokiest one. I thought the poetry game, like as much as, you know, I don't really like games or mini games or anything. I found that one pretty funny. I mean, you know, I found it funny how some of the poetry choices were wrong and you have to come up with the correct poem to express the character of Deadpool. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I, the, some of the pop art jokes in that one, too, I felt were pretty good. I mean, you know, <laughs> easy jokes, but at the same time, oh, a comic book panel, you made it big! Art! And, like, you know, getting in some of those little asides about pop art were fun. But, you know, I think it was, like, the good kind of Deadpool humor, where it's getting those jokes in, but, like, kind of in a joyful and not cynical way.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I-, I thought it was a good... Cross sampling of different eras. I don't think the art was always there. Like, I thought the 80s art didn't look 80s enough to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, um,
1: I was annoyed by that establishing shot of the 80s. And I was just like, mm, these aren't the right bodies yeah. and outfits for the 80s.
2: The 90s was good, yeah. though.
0: Yeah. The, the grasshopper from the 90s was uh, very, very on point. And uh, yeah. oh, Deadpool's response to him, just perfect.
1: Well, there was a great thing with that one. We oh, yeah. with this. <laughs> He interacts with yeah this like so there's this character called the grasshopper that appears in multiple eras and sort of um, is a character from those different eras within the era so in the 70s era he's like <laughs> Captain America instead of becoming nomad after the, um, the Red Skull takes over the government whatever um, the Secret Empire storyline becomes the grasshopper instead and then there's a 60s version of him um, that attacks Deadpool in the art gallery and then in the 90s there's a very Rob Liefeld esque 90s version of him him, and then Deadpool morphs into a Rob Liefeld version of Deadpool. <laughs> of him. But then that was a funny, that was a good joke, I thought, because there were two different um, avenues there where you can be like, the 90s were awesome or the 90s were terrible. And like you get either one of those, depending on which path you chose. I thought that was a good joke too.
0: I thought it was really interesting how, and this is something that very happens very often when Deadpool goes through history, which is also something that happens pretty often mm-hmm. uh, that, it was kind of a redefining of american history as marvel history yeah uh, that that struck me particularly in that nixon era one
2: yeah
0: uh, which i guess is what happened in the original uh secret empire story right that nixon or a rather a nixon uh lookalike was a traitor to the country working for uh no the secret empire that's the storyline yeah yeah uh, But like, yeah, just integrating and drawing on beatnik culture. uh, I appreciated the X-Men reference there. Just this idea that, and again, very common for Deadpool comics, the idea of rewriting the history to suit yourself, which also fits game books, that you basically play through all different choices until you find the ones that suit what you want to do. and. The book literally takes that to the final degree where all of the different deadpools that have been created in all of the different books and all your different choices team up to take down the baddie.
1: That's interesting, though, because that reminds me of sort of one of the satirical limits of Deadpool, which is that he's a character that critiques the Marvel Universe by celebrating the Marvel Universe, ultimately, (laughs) and he can only be so deconstructive on that level. And, like, that sort of reminds me of that a little bit, because, I mean, it's there's these jabs at pop art or various sort of eras of history or culture or, like, Marvel Comics, even from these various eras, and yet it's still ultimately celebratory, which I think is what makes it so appealing, because it's a joyful comic, like, ultimately. But that can also be one of sort of the limits of, of Deadpool's satire because I mean he's going back into the 70s era and effectively glorifying sort of the intellectualism of the comics from that era, even as he's making fun of them and like selling the Marvel brand effectively, right? Because yeah. he's like if you weren't aware of these comics from all these eras, you'd be like, Wait, what was this thing with Captain America? Was that? And then you go back <laughs> and you can like discover because you know that's how Marvel comics work, right? I mean, that's how they hooked me. It's like you get references to these things you haven't read and you're like, Wait, when did that happen? I gotta figure that out. And then you get all into it. So I mean I don't know like maybe it's like going too far to put that as like a criticism, but it's something I've thought about with Deadpool in the past that you know he can only be so critical. The first conference paper I ever did on comics was something about Deadpool and death, and I was I was very trying. I was in that mode of like very trying to legitimate comic scholarship at the time, so I did it within like Baudrillard's theories of (laughs) postmodernism and death and everything, and I I wouldn't do that again. (laughs) Um, But anyway, at the time I thought it was very smart. But I mean you know the way that Deadpool has this you know desire to die or at least he used to it's sometimes downplayed in the later comics um, but in the 90s comics that was certainly a th- through line of his story um, but he can't die because of the requirements of publishing industry so like it becomes a meta commentary on sort of the the parasitical nature of serialized comics publishing within the shared continuity universe but again there's always limits to that critique because the character literally can't die so his ability to critique the system is is circumscribed by that. And I mean, it's interesting the way that was maybe built into the mechanics of this comic and to good or bad ways, I'm not really sure.
0: Well, it's kind of, it's less overt, less part of the surface, but I think you could say something very similar about the 2080 Diceman comic too, That I, I, or 2080 in general, uh, that it is both kind of a satire of the action pulp, but also it's a satire by virtue of entirely doing it to extreme. Like the scene where the scene in the nemesis where you have to, navigate over the heads of your own agents and probably murder a few of them.
2: Yep.
1: Yeah. Just like
0: over-the-top ridiculous violence, especially in that one.
1: Yeah, that's like, that's entirely, yeah, that's basically what I'm talking about with the Deadpool thing as well. I mean, a different sort of the threat of it, but, you know, definitely it sort of makes you feel good about this thing because it's making fun of it, but maybe it's just repeating the thing it's making fun of. You know, typical problems with satire.
2: Yeah, I think 2000 AD embodies that really effectively just in terms of how many people Buy the comic for the sharp satire that someone like Judge Dredd embodies, but how many people do not see that satire, do not read that layer of irony, and just think that <laughs> Dredd is awesome? But okay. you
1: know, this is always a problem with superhero comics and violence and satire in general. And I mean, Marvel, you being, you know all about kind of like parody and self-reflexivity, but that being a very self-serving technique within the universe.
2: Oh yeah, it's a great way to sort of um, um, rationalize what you're doing, to try to appeal to dual audiences. Like there's a huge marketing element to that.
1: Yeah, I've always wanted to write about that more. And I always get stuck sort of writing about representation because we need more writing on that. But I've like not written about sort of the mechanics of storytelling in the Marvel universe as much as I would like, Mm -hmm. which is strange because that's sort of what drew me to it. But then, you know, I got caught up doing these other things.
0: All right, let's wrap things up with question and a half. What do you think of the game book genre now? Does it provide interesting possibilities for comics? Are comics a good medium for game books? Uh, You can condense all of that into what are your thoughts on game books and comics? And
2: the other question, what was your favorite You Are Deadpool joke? (laughs) Okay, my favorite You Are Deadpool joke was where um, a character gets distracted by a panel above them. (laughs) That was from an entirely different thread. I thought that was cool. And and Deadpool uses that against him. Um, In terms of my theories on mechanics, I wish to like reflect all of this back at Michael because the thing that keeps haunting me when I read this is just how video games can do this stuff seemingly better. Like a video game can do that Judge Dredd story. It can hide the dice mechanics in like a random number generator, essentially. uh, And it can create far more lines of choices available to... You know the 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 audience in this case so my question to michael is sort of is this a bridge to video games these game books or is there something here that is innately valuable in a way that a video game couldn't capture
0: i'm going to defer answer to that for a second uh because i feel like we won't be able to loop back around very easily anna what was your best (laughs) joke oh
1: (laughs) Um, I don't know. There was the thing where I think it's Kieran Gillen like stabs Deadpool to death with a sandwich. I mean, that was pretty good. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I did like the sadness, badness, like jokes throughout. I thought that was, I got a little bit obsessed with what a perfect encapsulation of the character that sort of mode was. (laughs) I thought that was, you know, speaking to those like mechanics, reflecting the character and extending from his world. I just thought that was so brilliant. So pretty much all of the jokes that played with that, I found really effective. But um but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You could see the Deadpool getting stabbed with a sandwich thing coming. Um, you know, but it was still it was still effective for me.
0: And uh my personal favorite was pretty much everything involving the Pin King. Uh hold on to <laughs> your golden ball, folks. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> there's um, a lot of good puns there.
0: <laughs> I think what the game book format what I really like about it is Yes, video games can handle a much more complex version of this, Mm -hmm. but mostly they have to handle it by hiding it behind the hood, so to speak. The advantage of a game book is that by deferring all of the mechanics onto the player, the player has to have that sense of how everything works to some degree. And it's much easier to get at the insides, to get at the mechanics, to get at how everything flows together. I could show you a flow chart of the first 20 or so fighting fantasy books that I've devised over the years and it really helps embody all right this is this is the narrative system this is the rhetorical processes that the game sets up the and fully grasp what that means which is really appealing to me as a game designer I have well, I'm barely a game designer, as a game critic, let's say. Um, A game expert. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, And maybe it's true then that game books appeal more to people who do prefer that side of things, but it's kind of the same thing that attracts me towards board games, that uh, it's much easier to kind of get at the rule system than a video game can offer. Your eyes flicker to the timestamp on the podcast. You notice that it is going near the end, and that means it is time for recommendations. Uh, Andrew, would you like to start off our recommendations for this episode?
2: Uh, Sure. I'm going to recommend a Deadpool story by um, Brian Posehn, Gary Dugan, uh, and Tony Moore. This would be um, Deadpool Dead Presidents uh, from Deadpool, volume one in, I think, think 2013 ish somewhere in there uh which is deadpool at his most looney tunes and his most sort of cartoonish so if you liked that element of you are deadpool i think you'd appreciate this it's the story is beautiful it's the idea is that um all the presidents have come back as zombies uh, and they can't have the avengers seen on camera killing former u.s presidents so they have to hire deadpool to do the wet work um and it's, it's pretty gleeful and strange and alienating Um, I I, I liked it, even in this. I thought it was sort of blowing up that character beyond his normal boundaries.
0: And I believe it has uh, Benjamin Franklin as a supporting character for a very long time after that.
2: (laughs) Yes, he's the mentor figure.
1: Yeah, I actually read that. I feel like this is another thing where I've done before where I've, like, contested your recommendations, (laughs) which is a horrible (laughs) thing to do, because I remember reading that when it came out. I bought that when it came out. I was pretty into Deadpool at the time. And I remember being annoyed by it only because Venture Brothers did a similar thing, which I Mm -hmm. thought was superior, like, prior to to that. Okay, so like I just I'm as much as I'm a Deadpool fan, I'm more of a Venture Brothers fan. So I just like I remember leaving a grumpy comment on comic book um on Comics Alliance about that and like getting a lot of pushback because people really <laughs> like it serious and I was like, This is why I don't comment on things. I was a grumpy comic book fan for like two seconds. I mean I'm grumpy about X Men comics a lot, but I try to keep those opinions offline these days since I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> but um <laughs> i would have to go back and read it i was like grumpy at the time about something i don't know what it was but i remember it being a fun series in other ways um so i'm sorry <laughs> <That> was, like, <laughs> oh my God. i just thought that was funny that you brought that up and i was like i really remember that <laughs> um, i really liked the art on it too though the covers were
2: amazing that was tony moore who was the original artist on walking dead oh so there's a really cool yeah. connection there anyway
1: Ah. Yeah, there were some great covers for that series. Um, so my recommendation is kind of dumb. It's uh, not as good as yours, so you can feel free to make fun of it. I am going to recommend the Cable and Deadpool series that ran from 2004 to uh, 2008, written by Fabian Nicieza um, and Riley Brown, among others. Um, with a number of different artists, uh, I just have a nostalgic fondness for the series. It was my original sort of connection to Deadpool, and I read the whole thing. and I have the final issue of it, which is like probably one of like my most worth any money comics because um, the price of dead- memorable Deadpool comics has gone up over the years but um locked in a box somewhere, probably getting mold on it. Uh, but yeah, it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting series to kind of revisit as like sort of a moment before this character did like sort of blow up and become like ultra, ultra popular. And, you know, his interactions with cable are usually pretty fun. They're like a good mm-hmm. duo, but um, <laughs> your comic is better, Andrew. <laughs>
2: uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, cause that
0: was a good series. <laughs> it might be, I haven't gone back to it in a long time, but it was, It's probably my favorite uh, Deadpool series, although uh, Deadpool Kills History or something along those lines is much better than you'd think it would be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I haven't read that.
0: Or I think it's Deadpool Kills Classic Literature or... What? At, right. He fights Moby Dick at one point. So that's that's that story. So my recommendation is going to be more in along the game book side of things. I have a vague feeling I might have recommended this one before somehow. There is a game book. Marvel did a, a small game book series in the 1980s. Uh, one in particular was written by Warren Spector, which video game fans might recognize as the kind of lead behind the original Deus Ex video game. The premise is that Thing has to go to various timelines to get samples of blood for from other alternate universe things in order to help the Fantastic Four. And the book is called One Thing After Another, <laughs> which is a masterful pun. Uh, so that's really great that it plays around with the alternate timeline aspect of uh, Two joint Adventure books. I'll also recommend Dave Morris's Heart of Ice, which can be purchased digitally for very cheaply, under $2, I think, and is probably the best example of a game book experience that I can point to. It is a post-apocalypse wander through the world in order to get an artifact to reshape the universe. So high sci-fi weird stuff
1: can i do a supplementary recommendation which i should have done for my recommendation but it doesn't relate necessarily directly to this but we were talking about king's quest quite a bit um my sister let me know the other day that there is a tell-all book coming out next month called (laughs) not all fairy tales have happy endings by ken williams documenting the behind the scenes rise and fall of sierra online and um yeah, I know. so I yeah. like that's coming out next month and related to our conversation today.
0: Oh, absolutely. That sounds great.
1: I feel like based on that title, this sounds like a joke, but it's a real book. <laughs> yeah, <it does. laughs>
0: the final moments of the podcast tick down, and the host announces the next episode. So next time we are going to be looking at the first six issues of Exiles by Judd Winnick and Mike McCone and Excalibur, The Sword is Drawn by Chris Claremont and
2: Adam Alan Davis. We'll As you can you imagine, then.
1: this was an Anna pick, given <laughs> my degree
2: of Nightcrawler content. And no-, no, is Nocturne in the first few issues? Yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah. she is. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: cool. It's going to be uh, a regular BAMP fest. We'll see you then.
1: <laughs> Thank you, everyone.